Ms. Regida Dirham is the founder and um, executive chairman of the Beirut Institute. If she wants to say what it is, what it does, why it exists, um, she's free to do that. She's the dean of um, journalists, editors, uh, spokespeople, and media representatives uh, in the network of the United Nations in um, New York and uh, bureau chief in New York for Al Hayat uh, a newspaper. Okay, and a member of our International Advisory Committee. Ms. Regido. Thank you very much. I want you to stand so people here can see you. They can't see you. But, but I'm gonna, okay, all right. Very good. I guess I'm going to start out here. Good uh, afternoon. I'm honored to, to, uh, to do the last session. Hopefully, uh, it will engage you and it will engage your interest because we have a very wonderful panel. And I want to thank um, Jean-Duc Anthony first for including me not only in the beautiful yearly annual uh, pilgrimage I do to Washington, but also an, on the advisory board, uh, I'm honored. Uh, Beirut Institute is a think tank for the Arab region with a global reach. What we uh, like to say about ourselves is that we are indigenous, an indigenous, indigenous think tank that functions in multiple uh, capitals, and we are hoping to become the intergenerational platform for thinking forward, thinking ahead, and uh, yeah, we need every help possible to make that happen. With this, I'm going to try to do this uh, session in a more um, sort of an, in, in, in a different style than what you've seen, only because I want to benefit from each and every one of the experts uh, because we have current situations that need engaging. So what I'm gonna do is I'm going to ask each of the speakers to speak only for four minutes, really, and then I engage that speaker uh, in order to, to pull out the further details related to the current status and to what should be done about it. And then I'll engage everybody all together uh, in, in the conversation, hopefully bring you in, and uh, of course then finalized by Dr. John Duke Anthony. With this, I'm gonna ask Luqman to begin because I think the situation in Iraq is very fluid and very interesting. We had a situation that included uh, uh, I mean, there are many different elements. I'll let him open up with his own statement. Uh, but uh, the recent developments in Kirkuk, what happened with Kurdistan, uh, and uh, the relationship between Dr. Haider al-Abadi and uh, President uh, Donald Trump, all of this we will touch on. But first, I'm going to tell Luqman kindly. And you, of course, you have the bios of everybody, so I'm not going to introduce them. I'm going to go with first names. And um, Luqman, it's, the floor is yours. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm honored to be here again. Uh, I think it's my fourth year. Uh, John Luke, thank you for inviting me again. Uh, I was asked to, I thought it would be more generic terms in relation to the Arab, but I was told to talk about Iraq more. So my comments will be uh, short, focusing on three themes. First, the challenges we face. Second, the need, what are the needs we have. And thirdly, some of the good news of what's taking place in Iraq um, and, and try to project the, the, the way moving forward. From a challenger perspective, uh, the, I think some of the themes of Iraq challenges are similar to the Arab region. Uh, when you look at the uh, development reports of the region since 2003 onward, you see accumulation of issues such as population growth, 
the ramification of Arab Spring and other issues in relation to governance, corruption, uh, development, entrepreneurship, women's, and so on. So to that effect, we are, Iraq is not that much unique. In fact, we have one of the highest population growth uh, in the region, if not in the world. Uh, on the other side, a challenge in relation to the economical challenge has been the Rendier approach and over-dependency on the oil uh, and petroleum. That has, good news is that Iraq has increased, it's in the margin of five million now, and it's number two in OPEC term. Uh, but, and there is a focus to keep on focusing on the production of, of, of increasing uh, the oil, uh, petroleum and energy. Uh, the challenge has been over-dependency on it. So the prices went dropped down, uh, roughly 40% of our revenue dropped as a result of that, while you have population growth and other challenges and the war and so on. So that has been one of the key challenges, is to manage the economy better and to diversify your revenues. Another challenge, I would say, is from a U.S. perspective, is U.S. engagement, disengagement, pause engagement, and the various phases of that in relation to U.S. troops and in relation to ISIS and so on. I still think that the relationship is still not on a, what I might call a predictable track. And that in itself is, a, is an issue for us because then where, where is your, the U.S. role in the region itself and what's the ramification on Iraq? So to me, that's one of the challenges. Also, the, when the discussion regarding how do you view Iraq? Is it, is, has it its own portfolio or dossier in Iraq in the US terms? Or will it be one where there is a dependency on ISIS on its own, uh, Daesh, or dependency on Iran prism? You view Iraq from an Iranian prism? Or do you view Iraq from a Syrian prism? But do you view Iraq on Iraq's term? That's, to me, one of the key challenges from a relationship perspective with the U.S. Certainly, the region itself, the ramification of the regional issues will have an effect on, on, on the situation in the Gulf, uh, the Qatar equation, or Syria, interdependency on Syria, and so on. So Iraq cannot be viewed on its own uh, to, to, to do its health check. You need to have a sort of a factor which is to do with the regional concern. Another issue is the relationship in a way that, which is to do with the role of non-state actors, which has increased over the last few years. In Iraq, we, have a, we can tell a good story in a sense of the unification of the society uh, following the June 2014 takeover of Daesh to various provinces, 30% uh, or thereabout of the country. Now we are in a much better position. We are more or less, I think we have only one or two counties within the whole of Iraq remaining where Daesh has control of, in the Ambar province. Otherwise, all Nainawa and Salahuddin and all of the provinces have been cleansed from ISIS. That's a good sign, but the non role of non-state actor is still a threat to the region and still a threat to Iraq, because the underlying issues may not have been addressed in relation to sort of the issues we talked about in the region and the post-Arab Spring ramifications. From a, a need, what does Iraq need? It needs to have a better interdependencies with its neighbors. And here I'm talking about infrastructure, developments, uh, commercial relationship, political structure, uh, away from the Arab League, or we need to have a new uh, mechanisms uh, or architecture, security architecture for the region. And to that effect, I think there is an urgent need for Iraq to, to have a role there. Also, there is an urgent need to address the corruption and the ramification of corruption in relation to security, terrorism, and so on. So I think that's another issue. 
A third need, which is rising, uh, and it's a, in way in way, it's a good news, is that the country now thinks it needs to start closing some of the heritage of the issues or remnants of the issues, whether it's terrorism, whether it's the KRG relationship, and corruption, governance, and so on. So there is a drive in the society that we are not happy with the current formula. We need to drive, and democracy is not working to the extent we want to, or we're not bearing the best fruit from it, and we need to focus on that. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's another aspect of it. In relation to the good news, well, I have to stick with my three minutes, four minutes. In relation to good news, I think there is a drive more from the youth of Iraq, the high percentage of the youth, 65% of the population are under the age of 35. Hmm. 65, a population growth of one million a year. So that should tell you a lot, that there's a youth uh, approach for, uh, uh, let's call it a, a culture of entrepreneurship, in, uh, use of technology and so on. That's all the good news. We need to, the government need to provide an environment for it, banking and other type of infrastructure for it. There is also good news in relation to the, our relationship with the Gulf countries, specifically Saudi Arabia. Uh, today there was a phone call between the Prime Minister and the King. I think the Prime Minister is being invited next week to, to, have a, to lead the delegation in relation to uh, committees, uh, highest level committees, in dealing with the issues. So that's a good sign. Uh, obviously the recent trips uh, and the recent dialogue and recent addressing some of the issues. Uh, to me it's one of the key flags and the US role here is much appreciated. It facilitated and I think it's a good success factor. But I think there is a, the foundation for it. I can't say it's on, the, uh, on a safeguard or it's on autopilot. No, it's on the right track, but it needs to have the better uh, controlled uh, sort of engine for it so that it doesn't, we don't lose sight or don't gain the momentum from it for a geopolitical benefit. Right. Also, another good news is that society is no longer for looking at one ism to be the solution for them, whether it's Islamism or Arabism or any other ism. The society are looking for new ideologies, a new drive in the 21st century to, to come up with. And that's, a, to me, it's a revitalizing as a result of democracy. That's what's taking place, and which is a good sign. Yeah. Finally, the people know that the weak structure of the state need to be addressed fragility of the state, and what we're looking at in relation to the KRG relationship, the referendum, not succeeding, which was predictable, but unfortunately we had to go through that painful process. The state getting control of its uh, facilities, of uh, ports, airports, borders, and so on, that's another good sign. But I would still think that the jury is still out as to the end game of this, i.e. we still not have the right environment for dialogue for us to address our intra uh, political challenges. And we need uh, help from the United States and others, but we first need to define a common vision for ourselves. I'll stop here. I think I'm within my timeline. No, you're not. You are seven minutes uh, and 15 seconds. You're very generous. <laughs> now that you, you asked. Are, you are generous. Yes. So I will ask you a, a quick uh, follow-up question. Uh, as far as the U.S. policy towards Iraq nowadays, it's noted that there is little mention of one of the major non-state actors in the region, and that's the Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq, which is the paramilitary forces that are mostly loyal to Iran, and they're led quite, all, quite often by uh, Qasem Soleimani um, from the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Uh, why is that? Why do you feel that when the administration is criticizing non-state 
actors everywhere. They mention Hezbollah, they mention everybody else, but they don't mention Al-Hashd al-Shaabi. Something is because very strange about that. Because they are working with the administration. Because what? Uh, they are working with the administration in relation to uh, on the ground, that the various U.S. forces on the ground, in relation to advisors and so on. There is coordination uh, because it's part of the Iraqi state and therefore it's not perceived as an external factor. Most of them are loyal to the state. Uh, I don't think it's, we could sweeply say this is a binary view, these are Iranian agents in the Iraqi system. It's not. It's that there are those who are loyal to Iran and they are not hiding from it, but I can't, I, there is no way we can compare ISIS to Hashid. It's, it's uh, literally non-starter. I hope we don't get that anyway. No, uh, the Even question in our is, discussion. Yeah, the question is, no, definitely there was no comparison between these two. You brought up that the parallels of both. I did not, but my question is that, what does this tell us? Does this tell us that the administration is working with Iran um, uh, on the, Iraq, and, and if you permit me, yeah, sure. and how does that, uh, from your point of view, interact with uh, interesting, uh, something that you pointed out, uh, the interesting return of the Gulf states, especially Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE and others, to be interested genuinely in Iraq? There is a new drive, as talked about, a sense of Iraqism that's revitalizing, and that's where I think the Saudis and others are banking on, which is a good way of reapproaching. Also, the, uh, from a Saudi's perspective, to understand that democracy is in action in Iraq, and you have to deal with Iraq as is. So that's another sign of it. Mm -hmm. But on the US, I've been on this podium in various conferences before, and I've said it, and I will let me repeat it. The US and Iran are aligned in Iraq mm. since 2003. That's a fact. Okay, is, this why, is this why the US uh, uh, chose to step away from another old ally, a very good old ally, allegedly, at least we were told, and that is the Kurds in Kurdistan. What happened yes, uh, is uh, that the, there is apparently a sense of betrayal, not only by the US policy, but no, amongst Kurds themselves. There's no they're, talking, they're speaking that language. No, no. What, what it is, is the Kurds more or less try to corner the US and say, choose between us and Baghdad. And the U.S. was clear from day one. They will choose Baghdad at any day because of the region, the size, and the issues of that. And I think it was a wrong, it was a calling a bluff which didn't work out for the Kurds. All right, I would, uh, I'm going to engage you more later on. Uh, this is fascinating, uh, wonderful presentation, very rich. And uh, thank you, Muna, Makram Abed, my old friend. Uh, you have the floor. I, again, hope that you will stick to the four or five minutes. He took seven, but head me out, and then I'll engage you similarly. Yeah, it took I seven and eight. a half. No, <laughs> but I, please, I, 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 really, I really think it's much more interesting when we engage like that. People stay awake, so let's do it. Right, so let's wake them up. So, we're talking now about Egypt and the U.S. An ebb and flow, as you know, uh, for the past years, and particularly during the Obama administration. So today, with a new administration, which Egypt has acclaimed, and unlike many people in the United States. The question is, where does Egypt fit into the US strategy towards the region? One, it is important to remember that the close cooperation that Egypt developed over time with the US was and remains of great significance to the US in their military engagement in particular in the region. The United States would not have been able, as you know, to go to war in the Gulf in the early 90s without Egypt's political support in the Arab world. The relationship declined, as I said, 
first uh, during the Obama period, but particularly in the wake of the Arab Spring and the fall of the Mubarak regime. Today, in the US, there is a kind of sympathy for Egypt's economic and security needs, but at the same time, there is concern over its repression of dissidents without really knowing what is going on in the country, because you cannot uh, look at uh, democracy through the prism of American democracy. This is quite impossible. That said, Egypt remains important to the US, especially in this time of crisis in the Middle East. Therefore, a robust, realistically-based relationship is important for everyone, including Egypt. It's also wise, I believe, for the Americans to recall that the situations in Egypt, in Sudan, and in the Upper Nile have Egyptian dimensions. On the other hand, again, we're talking about military engagement. The US could not sustain its present military engagement in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, without Egypt's logistical support. Three, Egypt intelligence has been an important ally between the American intelligence and the Egyptian intelligence in the war against terror and remains more than ever today as the crisis you know in the Sinai are daily with daily casualties. Four, U.S. relationship with Egypt is important to the Gulf states and important for U.S. relations with them. These factors mattered in the past but there are new important issues as well as these old preoccupations that I've talked about, and all of them call for renewed U.S.-Egyptian relations. Saudi Arabia and the Gulf cannot alone stabilize the Sunni Arab world. They need Egypt, and the U.S. needs broad regional stability. In fact, the Gulf and other U.S. allies in Europe look to the U.S. to play a constructive role in Egypt, not to walk away from it. Most important to remember that peace between Egypt and Israel is of continuing importance to the U.S. and to the rest of the region. Now, uh, if we look ahead, what do we see? What it is that we want? As a basis for policy, First of all, it is inaccurate and unwise to say that Egypt is dangerously unstable. Egypt's condition today does not merit that designation. Moreover, its public reiteration convinces Egyptians that the U.S. seeks instead instability. It is also important for the U.S. to ask what can they accomplish by asserting that Egypt is unstable. The U.S., the Americans in general, should recognize that Egypt is an ancient civilization and an ancient nation-state. The habits of its people are ingrained. Egypt's army is the most admired institution in the country. This is something that many in the media cannot understand, and I believe that a lot of the attacks against Egypt are really directed against Mr. Trump because there is such a good relationship between the two presidents. The chemistry is working. We don't know for how long, but uh, stability and order are core ambitions of the Egyptian people. Egyptians have the ambition to become more democratic, but they have seen 
Many experiments fail drastically around them. So <coughs> they see the grave crisis that democracies around the world are experiencing, and they are determined to proceed gradually. Americans must judge Egypt on the basis of what it is and what Egyptians want it to be, not on what Americans <coughs> think it should be. Thank you very much. Well, uh, let, me, uh, let me actually press you on something that's rather current now. Um, the Secretary of State, uh, Rex Tillerson, is going to the region to take up the issue of uh, this crisis with Qatar. Uh, Egypt is one of the four countries who, are, uh, who have boycotted Qatar, and, uh, some, and some say that probably the presence of Egypt in this situation is a complicating factor rather than uh, rather than a helpful factor, because it, they, they claim, anyway, that if the Gulf states are amongst themselves, it's easier to step out of the deadlock. Uh, Egypt bringing in its weight with anti-Muslim Brotherhood and its relationship with Turkey is, is, has become a weight on Gulf-Gulf relations. First, I'd like, I'm sure that you're going to challenge this, but uh, tell me if you challenge it, in fact, how do you think uh, Egypt could be helpful to the Secretary of State now when he goes to the region trying to see how he could bring back the ranks of the Gulf states together? <coughs> I don't think that Egypt is a burden because Egypt was drawn into the quartet. This is one. Second thing, Egypt mirrors more or less what the Gulf states want. And it's not on its own that it, took, it, take, it takes this decision, although it knows perfectly well that Qatar and Turkey are those who are sponsoring terrorism in the region. Second thing is that Egypt has taken an aggressive stand against uh, Iran. And this is <coughs> in the orbit of uh, the US foreign policy today. So uh, I personally, I do wish that the GCC will be able to solve its differences with Qatar because it's a crisis that is really eating up in, in the region, and there is no need for it to, to, to continue. I want to take another element of this close relationship between Egypt, uh, on one hand, Saudi Arabia, and Emirates, Emirates, on the other hand. At one point, it was an essential relationship, and you touched on that. It was an essential relationship in the hope of bringing back a balance in the, in, in the regional uh, balance of powers, because as you spoke, that uh, the Sunni leadership, but call it the Arab, the Arab weight in the balance of powers in the region versus, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, Iran, and Israel. Uh, it seems that it, that got stuck a bit. However, we recently hear, and I'm combining two elements here, that Egypt really struck real good luck with oil discoveries off its shores. How is that going to, to impact the further, well, the, in, the economic independence of Egypt and Therefore, it's political relationships in case any of them are tying Egypt down, whether it's with the US or with other countries in the region. If they drop Egypt? No, nobody is dropping Egypt. I'm just saying the, bringing Egypt back into the balance of power as an essential element of that balance of power, is this doable now with the discovery of oil that you are more, you'll be able to be more economically independent and therefore shape it up the way you wish? Of course, this is a new discovery. People are very excited about it. And any discovery that will make Egypt less dependent on whoever it is, whether it is the US or the Gulf countries, 
is, will be a plus, because for the past years after the uh, Camp David Accord, where uh, the US was paying 1.3 billion a year, and uh, another millions for uh, economic recovery, all this has made the Egyptians take it for granted that they must receive this aid. And I don't think this was particularly positive. I think now is the time for them to think about being more self-dependent, to have more drive, uh, to be competitive on the world uh, uh, market, and so on. Particularly the young people, because this is what they want. They don't have this uh, weight. Uh, that the elders have. Uh, well, no, I have to, I'm sure that you're not going to like the next question, but that you, you heard it in the West and a lot of places uh, in, in the Arab region, even in, within Egypt, that why is it necessary to go on curbing the political rights if, uh, if the uh, situation in Egypt is uh, that stable and the people, uh, you know, really made the right choice with President Sisi. W w what's wrong with easing up on political rights of others, of course? It will be easing up, but not necessarily immediately. Don't forget that Egypt is facing daily challenges in the Sinai and now inside Egypt. As you have heard last week and the week before, Daesh or ISIS has uh, as a target, the civilians now, and particularly the Christians. As you have seen, they have brutally been um, killed, and it, this, this brutality is continuing. So th the, the, the internal environment and the regional environment is not really conducive to have a change in this direction. On the other hand, most of the Egyptians, after what they have seen for the past six years and what is happening in the neighboring countries, prefer stability today to immediate democracy. Thank you very much, Mona. I'm going to give the floor now uh, to Wafa to speak about Where Libya. Again, uh, the uh, same situation. You. Kindly take four or five minutes, and then I will engage you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me to participate in this important policy conference. A special thanks to Dr. Duke and the National Council of U.S.-Arab Relations. Uh, I'm going to uh, tackle a few things first. Why, why do we think it's important for the U.S. to uh, continue to be, uh, be engaged with Libya and to be engaged even more? This is uh, a challenging question always facing us. The second thing, I'm just going to go quickly over some challenges we're facing, uh, needs, and way to move forward briefly, and then we'll uh, go into the IQ. Uh, why the U.S. should be engaged, and I think uh, recent events have shown that no country can isolate itself from the Arab region's current crisis. The rest of the world simply cannot prosper while uh, our nations are in disarray. It's spilling all over, and the chaos is getting uh, cross borders to many of the European countries and across the region. We believe it's very much in the U.S. national security interest to continue engagement in building peace processes and galvanizing the rest of the world to help doing so in our uh, nations. While history dictates a leading role for our European partners in, in Libya in particular, still American leadership is required to galvanize a currently divided Europe 
and rally external players to provide support to the peace and reconciliation. Certainly the competition and conflict between external players had played a big role in delaying uh, reaching a peace process in our country. We uh, count on the US leadership in rallying uh, those players. Uh, what, what are some of the challenges we are facing? And this is, I think everybody follows the news and uh, we, we hope it will be resolved soon and I don't, I don't believe that uh, necessary uh, our uh, nations and our, our uh, Arab world is uh, condemned to the current cycle of conflict. And I think the world has succeeded in resolving many conflicts in the past, whether in, after World War II in Germany, in Japan, in Colombia. And I think if the world rallies behind us, we can solve the conflicts and move forward. The challenges we are facing currently and right now, certainly the spread of arms, militias, terrorism, cross borders, uh, divided security institutions, of course, and security apparatus, uh, polarization between people, porous borders that have allowed a huge flux of immigrants coming from the southern borders of Africa and crossing to Europe. Uh, what do we need? We need the support of the US and the international partners to help us in reaching reconciliation that is necessary for a political solution to succeed. Right now, the UN is supporting uh, a, a new, uh, I mean, there's a new momentum to amend the political agreement that was agreed upon in uh, uh, December 2015. But for the political solution to succeed, we need reconciliation and we need peace between people to accept it. There's a lot of bitterness. There is a lot of angry and anguish across the country. And as long as that continues, it's gonna be hard to have a sustainable political solution. Now I think we need the international community to support us on not just top bottom uh, uh, level, but also bottom top level on council, on council levels in many cities, on municipality level to reach people and to provide uh, help to return the refugees, the IDBs, to help us reconstruct the devastated cities uh, such as Benghazi and Sirte who paid a high price in fighting terrorism, help us remove the mines that are taking lives up to today and help this will help the reconciliation necessary to reach a political solution. Once we reach a political solution, we will be able to get rid of the arms that are spread all over, integrate those militias, whether in civil life or military, unify our military and security apparatus that is necessary to secure our borders, and that will be the only way to defeat terrorism or stop the flux of immigration. Otherwise, military operations alone will not be enough. Whatever Europe is doing now, all of those uh, initiatives should be southern to our borders and not inside Libya. Thank you. That's Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Let me. Uh, the one thing I want to sort of get a sentence from you about is what is the Trump administration's policies on Libya? Okay. Policy or policies? What are the policies yeah. or what is the policy? Uh, okay, thanks. Uh, right now, uh, the, the US 
is supporting the UN uh, uh, Libyan political agreement. They're supporting Mr. Ghassan Salama, who has been recently appointed as the envoy to the Secretary General. And right now, as we are talking, there are talks happening between uh, different committees of the uh, Congresses in Libya. We have the House of Representatives uh, in, the, in the East, and then we have the uh, National Congress in the West, and there are committees trying to uh, amend the political agreement that proved it did not work. There was <laughs> obstacles, there were a lot of uh, uh, you know, challenges. So the US is supporting that. They're doing two things. They are uh, countering terrorism on one hand, and we saw a lot of military operations taking place and, and served, and uh, they're supporting some uh, you know, uh, groups on the ground to do that. And politically and diplomatically, and they're doing a lot of efforts also to rally the international partners behind uh, Ghassan Salama and behind the UN initiative as well. Yeah, I'm just wondering about uh, if there is a competition or complementary uh, efforts between the United States and uh, Russia, because Russia is very interested in Libya. And of course, the Europeans, traditionally Italy and the UK, were much more interested than the US recently. Of course, uh, we don't want to go through history right now. Yes. But, but is, is there a complementary approach, American-Russian, or, or is it a comp competitive one? To be honest with you, I think the US uh, has, I mean, there's, there hasn't been any uh, hard competition like we saw in Syria or whatever, conflicts and everything. I think everybody's playing soft diplomacy. There are things uh, not necessary. Um, uh, th there's no uh, presence on the ground for anybody. There's no presence, physical presence of any uh, country or forces. And I think uh, in what we saw in the UN now, uh, the international community is rallying behind uh, the UN's initiative because everybody found out after years of struggle between and competition, it's in nobody's advantage that Libya stays in this conflict. It's just and the neighbors and how about like uh, what about Egypt and Algeria? This is this is Tunisia. I mean, I'm not the European neighbors who only no, no. think in terms of refugees. I'm asking about the other neighbors and the responsibility uh, in terms of the non-state players, as you politely refer to them, and uh, whether they are Qaeda or ISIS. For, for a couple of years, we saw uh, certainly a competition between many of the region's countries uh, in Libya. Uh, right now, and let me tell you, that's why there is a sense of optimism and there is a new momentum, is that finally we saw uh, on the side of the last meetings in Anga after a big diplomatic United effort Nations, by uh, many countries Anga. here and there mm -hmm. and traveling and meeting and conventions and I don't know what and in London, in Rome, in Algeria, in Egypt, in Tunis, you name it, in Abu Dhabi, I mean in every country, finally there is uh, a consensus I think to, to rally behind the UN uh, uh, initiative and behind Ghassan, and this is the, the, the good news that we have now and the, the optimism and the momentum, and I, we, we really hope that Mr. Ghassan uh, can, can succeed. But there are other things that are needed for this, and this is what I pointed out where I said a lot of anguish and anger should be calmed down, and that needs working on, uh, you know, uh, Return of IDPs, refugees, help reconstruct. In, 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 
not in sequence, but rather in, uh, in parallel with the political efforts, you know, so that you can have more people buy in the political agreement of the political deal. As long as you have a lot of people that are angry and they feel mm -hmm. uh, they're not, they, they are devastated, they, uh, they don't want to be part yep. of this. And this is, the polarization continues and the, 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 the split continues. I appreciate your call for a bottom-up approach because you have uh, really, there's the need to pay attention to the infrastructure, yes. human infrastructure in Libya exactly. is very important. My final quick question is, is it true this, uh, that Saif al-Islam Qadhafi is back in politics and actively so? Uh, we saw some reports of that. I, I, I cannot comment on that. I saw it in some news media. It's been circulating, but really I cannot confirm or that. Thank Thanks. you very much. Uh, for all of you who do not know that I'm a journalist, you could see that the journalist is in me is trying to get news. Thank you very much. Walid, uh, Faris, and you have the easy task of explaining yes. uh, what uh, the administration, Trump's administration, is up to in the Middle East. Uh, and so, yeah, you will, you will have a lot of follow-up questions from me, but first you have the floor. Thank you so much, uh, Rarida. I'd like to thank very much the... Uh, National Council, Dr. Duke, for inviting me, and I'm very proud to be on this very privileged uh, panel. First, a point. I am not an expert in business and economics, but I can say as geopolitical uh, analyst that strategic business relations will always adapt to crisis. I mean, they never stop. It could be in the most prosperous area or in the most complicated area, they do adapt. But definitely, a more peaceful, stable, uh, region will help uh, business between the United States, international community, and the region. That is a consensus I think we have in this room. Now, quickly what I would like to do, this is not the easiest one, but I'll try to make it as easy as possible, is to try to summarize really to the core, very simplified, and I'll be very happy to answer questions question later. If you are in the administration and Congress, I'm gonna add Congress because Congress also plays a role in backing the administration or not, on some issues, how would you look at the region and its crisis? So I'm not gonna be looking at the good news, only the other news, and then list them, and we could open, when Rahida wants, the discussion of all these matters. So point number one is, as it was mentioned before, there are four ongoing wars. So if you are in the White House or in the various committees in Congress, you will be first looking at the four wars, uh, listing them by order of engagement, not by order of importance, but in order of engagement, of U.S. engagement. There's no doubt about it that we are engaged in Iraq the most. Then secondly, we are engaged in Syria. Then thirdly, we are somewhat engaged in Libya, as Madam Ambassador has mentioned. Last, we are somewhere, somehow engaged in Yemen, but from remote. Maybe our counterterrorism efforts in Yemen are more visible than the rest. Now, I'll be happy to go over one uh, after the other, but when the Q&A question will begin. Number two, there is this overarching cloud that exists and that the president has mentioned in his last speech last week about the relationship with Iran. Now, that goes through the Arab world. It's not just U.S.-Iran, but it has to do with the Gulf. It has to do with the Iranian presence, involvement in three at least of these, uh, if not four, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and, uh, and Yemen. And it, it is clear that in the narrative, the administration that is, and backed by Congress on this one, because they have a lot of divergence on many others, they want to change, the administration wants to change the Iranian behavior in the region. 
That is uh, underlined in red. Now, how is a question that I cannot answer because I am not inside the administration. And therefore, this is something that we could discuss and have our own assessments merging. But one thing is sure is that the Iran deal as it is right now is a subject, and I'm quoting the president and his officials around him, will have to either be implemented to the text or will have to be addressed, changed, and as the president has mentioned, maybe you know, we can get out of it, but that depends of a lot of factors, including with our partners in Europe and in the region. Number three, the terrorism and violence in the region, which has been covered, there are, there are consensus, a set of consensus in, in, in Washington between the Hill and the White House is that ISIS will have to end that's why you see always the priority is about ISIS. Even in the middle of issues and problems, Ragida mentioned uh, Kirkuk and others, you, you just saw that in the midst of it, there is no US position on that, at least declared, but there is a constant position on ISIS. In Syria, there is a whole issue about the northeast part of Syria and the regime, and what we're gonna do about Syria, the most clearest point is about first ending ISIS, and also goes with it Al-Qaeda. Now, on the other side of these networks, you know, one is Takfiri Salafi, the other one is linked to Iran. Well, U.S. is very clear on Hezbollah. It is on the list. There are, men, there are policies. Sanctions are growing. We could expand on that. The other component, and last on this one, is uh, with regard to the Iranian Revolution Guards known as Pazdaran. A lot of talks on behalf of the White House, many members of Congress that they want to put it, they want to move forward, they even said it. What they would do actually is still not clear and when that will be done. Um, for the regional issues, I was just gonna list them because I won't have the time to go over them. Number one, the Israel-Palestine issue. I am sure that you're gonna be talking about that. There is some new, some new data with regard to that issue. With regard, for example, the embassy move and with regard to the minimum that needs to be required before the embassy moves. This is a whole discussion that has been taking place, at least under this administration. Another matter which is not very much addressed, but is there, and observers and analysts have been seeing it, is the Russia-US presence in the region. It's like the elephant in the room. The Russians are more present than ever in Syria and beyond, and the US is present almost in every country where Russia is, Syria and Iran. So that is an issue that needs to be developed. Uh, Madame Mona mentioned the Egyptian-US relationship. There is a lot of new stuff happening there. Uh, it went from neutral or historic under Mubarak, a lot of crisis, distrusts uh, in, 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 in after the, uh, the changes in Egypt, into now, yes, there is a new era where on the, I don't wanna say on the surface, but in the foundations of strategy, it has been improving strategically, but there are many issues that needs to be addressed and are being addressed. Last in the issue of regional matters is the Arab coalition. I'd like, if asked later, to talk more about what is the U.S. position with regard to the famous Riyadh coalition known as Arab Islamic coalition, so on and so forth. And last, a matter that is not really focused on by most of us, but there are pressure groups in D.C. that always are concerned and lobby for it, etc. We call them the severe domestic conflicts in the region. But that's come really at the number five. One is Sudan. You know that the sanctions have been lifted. Two is the Iraqi Kurdish matter, which is outside ISIS. Three, a matter that may become important is Yemen. Yemen and the southern uh, 
attempt to separation. So that is the tableau, if you want, of all the points we'll be happy to discuss. Thank you very much, Rakida. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Let me take the, uh, Yemen first. Do you think that the U.S. is going to take any uh, important leap in its uh, relationship with the dossier of Yemen now that the relationship with Saudi Arabia is excellent? What I can say in the relationship between the administration and the Saudis has become excellent on all levels. But when it goes beyond the kingdom's borders, then there is an American re-evaluation of everything. What is clear in Yemen is our engagement against U.S. engagement against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So in the middle of a war in Yemen, you see the U.S. sending drones specifically on Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS not being involved in the, in the conflict of the Houthis. So you don't hear what I hear, that uh, the, one of the pillars in the new strategy that the president announced on Iran is to really take a firmer position uh, with Iran or against Iran in, in the context of Yemen. Last week, that was the position. So we are one week <laughs> after that statement, Rakhida, you know. So I'm waiting. That's really very... worrisome. If, <laughs> if we have to go with the policy that last week it was this and this week it's not, no, we that haven't is really seen scary. Action. We haven't yet seen action, meaning I agree with you. Something has changed last week, and I agree with you, but I am very cautious in making any statement because we haven't seen yet on the ground anything that would implement that policy from last week. All right, let me... Then... Let me then take, uh, uh, take, take another uh, point that, is, that was clear in the president's speech on announcing the strategy, the new strategy on Iran. Okay, he really used the word regime in Tehran about at least a dozen times, not referring to the government. He, in fact, de-legitimized uh, the regime, uh, which was uh, legitimized officially by President Barack Obama from the United Nations podium, and therefore he is reversing that. Now, you could say this is a good idea, maybe he wants regime change in Tehran, but is the president taking uh, a bigger bite than he could chew on that? The president and the administration have moved from where the Obama administration was. That's clear. You know, the position in 2009 when there were demonstrations on the streets, clearly the administration said, we're not meddling. Into the Iran deal, which actually is releasing billions of dollars to the regime, hoping that the regime will change behavior. What the Trump administration, and with it many members of Congress, have done is to reverse that part. We, meaning, I will translate into, we do not trust the behavior of the regime, that, therefore they call it regime. Second point, Ragida, is that the president and his officials started to talk about the Iranian citizens That's and right. communities so, so exactly and opposition. About, yeah. This is new. This is a change. I don't want to repeat my argument that it's only old, one week old, but you're right. It is a change. Okay. Is this a call for a regime change in that sense? I mean, is the president saying, I'm reversing what President Obama said, that he committed that he would not interfere in the internal politics. Barack Obama basically said, I'm not going to interfere. Your business is your business, and you are legitimate government. I think President Trump is saying something else. Are we supposed to expect action? Or is this, forgive me to use this, uh, lip service uh, and escalating the rhetoric? It's so short in time that I would say the direction is, the general direction is, we will be talking with Iranians. Now, what, who, and to what extent, I don't know. Mm. But yes, it's a real change from what was the position before. I cannot see the horizons of where this policy is going to go in the next weeks or months. 
Okay, well, maybe, thank you very much, Walid. Uh, maybe uh, the commentator could tell us. I will, um, I will ask you to, to, to use half your time for commentating because I would appreciate your input on a subject, and you're an expert on that, um, that we did not touch on because of the geography represented here, and that is Syria. Um, I would appreciate if you give us your input on this, and you know, I know you're a commentator, so divide your time as you wish. All right. Thank you very much, and uh, again, I join my co-panelists in thanking the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations for inviting me. Uh, I will be trying, you know, listening to my co-panelists, each of whom has made excellent presentation. Uh, so I'm going to be just making, uh, you know, picking on, on, on some of the themes they have presented. In terms of what Walid talked about, in terms of ongoing wars, there are four ongoing wars in the region. And I think the problem there uh, has been that, or part of the problem is that the region has not been able to develop its own indigenous conflict resolution mechanisms, or whatever we have in the region so far has not worked. And going forward, I would, put less stock, if I were living in the region, on uh, a US uh, administration, this one in the future, that's willing to invest in solving the problems of the region. Uh, the Middle East Institute uh, has just conducted with Ipsos an online poll asking, uh, you know, it was just released yesterday, about uh, uh, it's a, a nationwide poll uh, about uh, public perception of the Middle East, uh, whether they would like to see the US policy continue to be involved in the Middle East. There is a large majority, over 70%, that would like to see uh, uh, a relationship going forward between the United States and the Arab region. But of that 70%, 50% do not want the US to be involved in solving the conflicts of the region. And that's, that's now the feeling uh, that I think even President Trump has highlighted when he focused in his campaign on America first. There is a wariness, there is a tiredness inside the majority of the US public of us going back and back and back to solve conflicts that keep returning and returning and returning. So there is a need for the region, so not only to look toward the US, but also for the region to start looking at indigenous, its own regional conflict resolution architecture. Which brings me to the second point which was raised by Lukman, which is the need for a regional architecture. This is one, this is, the least integrated region in the world, if we compare it to other, you know, region. And, and there are a number of uh, factors that we don't have time to go into as to why uh, it has not been uh, integrated uh, and, and what are the benefits, the con and the pros of a regional architecture. Uh, but this is, this is a reality that we need to work on. The problem is that going forward, the identity of the region uh, is changing. Uh, the identity of the actors that are influenced conflict, that are involving in, involved in shaping the future of countries in conflict in the region are ch is changing. 
Take Syria, for example, building on what Raghid has asked me to talk about. There are three countries today that are involved in shaping the future of Syria. Three countries. None of them is Arab, and the US is not one of them. And the three countries are Russia, Iran, and Turkey. They are the ones who are in the Astana process where the future of Syria is going to be shaped and is being shaped. And that's a, a, that's, a, that's a reality that we have to tackle with. So when you talk about US-Arab relations, when you talk about an Arab region, there is there an identity crisis of what Arab region we are talking about and what are the other players that need to be brought into the discussion when you are talking about US-Arab region. Uh, uh, US-Arab relations, talking about Syria, again, the focus in Syria has been very narrowly uh, uh, defined by the Obama administration and again embraced by the Trump administration as countering ISIS and de-escalating the opposition government conflict. Unlike the Obama administration, we have now seen the US position toward the Assad regime changing from one of opposition to tacit acceptance. We have seen the Trump administration decision earlier in 2017 to seize the CIA Title 50 program of overt support to vetted opposition groups, clearly underlying this shift on Assad and the doubling down on the counter ISIS mission. Now, we talk about there is a US strategy for Syria that is in the making. If there is one, I have yet to see it. I have yet to know what are its underpinnings. The latest I'm hearing is that there is, we would, um, our MO going forward on Syria is going to be strategic ambiguity. For me, this is synonymous for no strategy. Uh, uh, and what, what and, and, and the problem that we are, you know, with, with the focus that we, uh, the problem is that in Syria, and I have to be here fair, is that the Trump administration came into, into power with the Syrian conflict facing a very limited set of options due to a failed Syria policy embraced by the Obama administration that was based on and premised on wrong assumptions. So the question that's going to be facing US policymakers, Trump administration, Congress going forward, is not what is the good option in Syria. It is what is the least bad option in Syria. Now, when, when, when you strip down why do we need to be involved in Syria, there are no vital security interests for the United States, no existential security interest for the United States in Syria. There is a couple of vital security interests in Syria, <coughs> primarily having to do with counterterrorism, imposing the norm of uh, against proliferation of uh, biological and chemical weapons. And there are secondary interests, especially having to do with limiting spillover. And so the problem, I mean, so the question is going to be, once ISIS stint in state building winds down, and it is winding down rapidly in Iraq, it is going to be winding down going forward in Syria, what are we going to do? What's going to be our strategy? There is a competition right now between the Syrian Kurds on one hand, which are backed by the United States, and between the other coalition, Iran, uh, Assad regime, uh, 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 militias, Hezbollah, 
to fill the, uh, the vacuum or to occupy uh, the, the territories that have been liberated uh, by ISIS. Mm. And so the question, the question that I have in terms of uh, US policy in Syria uh, going forward is that there is not right now, beyond fighting and defeating ISIS, I don't see a strategy of, 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 of uh, what, is, what are we going to do post-ISIS, especially vis-a-vis Hezbollah's role and vis-a-vis Assad. Uh, Walid, I have a question for you. Uh, do you think that uh, the way it is on the ground in Syria, it looks like the Iranian Revolutionary Guards are the ones that are that are taking over the territories liberated from uh, ISIS. So, but, but I don't see anything on the ground that would uh, put the threats of President Trump in, in to, 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 uh, to, to use there because they are taking over these lands and nobody is stopping them. So combine that with the question I have in mind for what would the US policies have to be once it, it, uh, that, that victory is claimed over ISIS? Uh, in terms of, uh, of Iran, and are the U.S. companies, uh, will they be able to compete with other companies in the reconstruction of Syria now that it's the, the key to that is, is Russia? That's the, the one billion dollars question of the day. The many billions. The many billions. <laughs> um, quickly, Rakida, there, there, are, there is an analysis on the high altitude of the problem, which has to do really with the U.S. administration backed by Congress with regard to Iran, because if it goes well, if there's normalization, it will have one impact. If there is a clash, it will then have another impact in Syria and Iraq and elsewhere. And then you have the reality on the ground. Um, Dr. Randa said something important. There is a race in Syria. In Iraq, the race is almost over, but in Syria, you have the, let's call them the uh, Syria Democracy Council in the north, which is majority forces. forces. Syria Democracy Yeah, forces. they have a council to control, yeah. but, and forces. So it has majority of Kurds with some Arab Sunni and some few other minorities. They are moving down, they took Raqqa, and now, as I heard this morning, they're heading towards uh, the east. Uh, uh, and then, of course, you have the regime and its allies that are thrusting in the center, and also their goal is to get to the uh, Iraq-Syria border. So at one point, those two forces are gonna claim as much territory as they can. The third force is the opposition backed by Turkey. You also mentioned that. So we're gonna end up, at the end of the day, after ISIS is dismantled, with three zones. Now, three zones, I think the logical next step for the administration is to call for negotiations but negotiations based on the fact that these are the three players in Syria with whomever is supporting them. I don't see clearly where and what is the process and where they're gonna go, but to answer your specific question, it is going to be longer than what we think. Mm. Meaning to get back a Syria that was there before and complete, so businesses and economics are gonna have to look at the situation whereby what they see right now is gonna take a long time. So you think the American companies will have equal share of competition, uh, whether it is in, in Libya, you could come in on yeah. that as well. Uh, do you think that they, they will have an equal share of competition or is this gonna be really the, the cake of Italy, in, for, for example, in Libya and uh, Russia and Syria? Both of you. Madam, go ahead. This, okay, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, yani, this takes me back to another thing and I think just saying, uh, responding to uh, Dr. Randa, 
when, when she said there is not much for the U.S. to be engaged in the region. And I tell you something, uh, the, the region is one of the biggest economical partners of the U.S. I mean, the region imports almost like 60% of the U.S. goods go to that region, whether be it on everything. Uh, I think the U.S. has a big interest in the stability of the region without them knowing because the, the chaos of its spills there uh, you're going to use, you're, I mean, the U.S. will lose a, a partner, uh, let alone ISIS, this, the threat, whatever, but uh, economically talking. So this takes me to the economic, and not only that, I mean, the, I, I started by saying this. We have seen that whatever, st uh, whatever happens in one country does not stay in it anymore. It spells all over. I mean, terrorism went all over, all over the globe. The immigration crisis is all over. I do not wish to look at Libya, by the way, from the lens of immigration or terrorism, because these are merely results of, the, of what happened, and they're not the cause. But uh, this brings me back to why the U.S. should be engaged. We see now big dynamic from the U.S. companies uh, trying to go into Libya, by the way, and I think it's that uh, they want to be part of the reconstruction. Uh, they want to, uh, we have, uh, uh, they, we have big American companies in the oil sector, and you know, Libya has the biggest oil reserves in Africa. I mean, this is what, latest what, studies. What's going to happen to your national oil company? What are, because unless you have clarity as to where your um, economic authorities lie, uh, ah. how is anyone going to be interested in investing and trusting the future of Libya? What should the U.S. do and what should okay. Libya do? I'm, I'm glad you brought up this because one of the things I didn't talk about was the economical uh, challenge when I spoke about the many challenges. And we just finished uh, talks here with the World Bank all through last week and IMF. And uh, right now there is uh, an internationally uh, recognized government, the, G the GNA, which is recognized by the United Nations. And this is a result of the Libyan political agreement that was signed in last December. So this is a government where the international community works with and therefore the institutions that are, uh, the, the international community works with, namely the, the NOC, uh, NOC. Uh, the NOC has succeeded in overcoming the political uh, division and they're working east and west and they're, they, are, they have succeeded in increasing the oil uh, uh, production, we, they have succeeded in increasing the revenue, and to that extent, the U.S. companies feel, uh, in, especially in the oil, they're working comfortably with NUC because uh, it was interesting because in the Middle East I mentioned three institutions, very important institutions, succeeded to stay away from the political division. NOC, the National Oil Company, is one. The 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 heritage the it's a antiquities the antiquity authority and the judiciary police authority these three important institutions managed to stay and the international community is working at comfort with them they're working east and west so now i see that uh, a lot of american companies we just had a meeting at the chamber of commerce here last week a lot of us companies are eager to come back because they feel that libya is near 
uh, could be near uh, a solution, and they certainly want to be part of the uh, uh, business and uh, uh, economy and reconstruction and whatever. So I'm going to move to the other side, but bef uh, because I have to go back to um, Luqman and Muna. But how the, will the issue of the ownership of the Central Bank of Libya and the investment authority of Libya be resolved? I mean, you know, these are essential things for people to, to know about before they come and, you know, be excited about investing in a country when it does not have institutions. Has this issue of ownership of these basic bodies been resolved? Is it being resolved? Uh, uh, quickly, I'm gonna answer you quickly, so you move to the other side. As far as the central bank, there is, there is the, the international community works regardless of the political division, but they recognize uh, the central bank and one governor. There's a big call now, and this is great that the board uh, reunites. But as far as business goes, uh, it's one central bank and its governor is recognized, and there are efforts now to have the board so that the eastern uh, governor joins in and it will be one governor. But as far as business and daily business goes, there is certain institutions that the international community works with. The same with the Libya Investment Authority. And uh, uh, I mean, even though there are different authorities, East and West, but internationally, they deal with one authority. I'm going to go to Luqman, and, and I want to ask again, I mean, uh, about uh, something that you said earlier that you believe that the U.S. and Iran are cooperating fully in, in Iraq. Alignment. Alignment, you called it. Okay. So uh, can you, one more time, uh, take this further uh, in light of the developments and in the recent developments with the Kurds and the, the GCC countries? What is next? What, I mean, is, is, is this a good policy? Is this a sound policy? How will it translate itself? Might it translate itself in better relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example? Or that's a different matter? I mean, I would say that the U.S. Uh, view or approach to the region has not been one of a comprehensive complementary policy but more of transactions and in relation to Iraq there has been a clear US Iranian alignment in transactions in how do we deal with the issues one simple example would be this KRG example the referendum where the US the Kurds are more aligned with the US as a strategic partner from all sides, from society, leadership, and so on, uh, with the army and, and so on, with the US Army. But on the practicalities of it as well, the US was clear that this uh, referendum will not work and it will not support it. And when the Kurds called the bluff, the US said, sorry, we will choose Baghdad on, uh, over you. And Iran, same as well in relation to the alignment. So there has been that alignment. The US has also pushed the Saudis and push the Iraqis to have a better alignment in relation to dealing with the issues, not because of it's anti-Iranian. I think it's more beneficial for Iraq. I would say that the US has viewed Iraq in its own package rather than from an Iranian prism. Is it changing now? Yes, I think the, the, I think the jury is still out as Trump administration. Will it view Iraq from an Iranian prism or not? If it does, then the relationship with Saudi Arabia and others will 
drastically change. And what do you bet? What's your bet? I think it will change because I don't see Iraq dossier on its own. I see it as a, a ramification of other dossiers. And there's clearly an Iranian dossier. If we don't follow up uh, Trump's administration foreign policy, we should only know what this. As far as Iran concerned, that's a common theme across all the issues it has. Uh, thank you very much, Muna. Uh, I, I'm going to give you the last word, uh, and uh, because I know we have till 4:50, but I think we went too long. I'm ordered that I should wrap it up. So forgive me uh, if uh, if I don't come back to you, um, Muna. What is what is the, what what landscape do you see? coming up in the region now with the new Iranian strategy, with the reset in American-Egyptian um, uh, relations, with uh, you know, the, the Gulf states re-establishing the relationship with Iraq. Do you, do you with, I don't know what's going to happen with Syria. Who knows? Do you see more of a confrontation coming our way? Do you, do you feel that there will be you know, um, a fight between the, 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 big, the big guys in, on the ground, I'm talking Saudi Arabia and Iran, in Syria, in Lebanon, in, other, in, in Yemen? Or do you feel that this is, there is a chance for wrapping it up and starting to cooperate and take the region in a different direction? Look, from the discussions we've had today and the very important and incisive analysis, one thing that we have to be clear about, and it's the is the recognition that the status quo ante cannot be restored. There's a new game in town. There's a new balance of power in town. People are talking about a new Sykes-Pico. People are talking a redivision of the, 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 the 22 <coughs> states into 50 or whatever states. All this is a blur until now. What I want to say is what is renewed in the leadership in Egypt. Today, Egypt is taking an, uh, an interest which was not there a few years ago in the neighbors, which is one, uh, the reconciliation between Hamas and Fatah. And this is a historic move today. Uh, and they managed it successfully. Hamas is opening a, a, a shop in, in, in Cairo doesn't mean that people in Cairo accept that. They don't accept Hamas until now, but at the general level, it is what is going to be. The second thing is the new entrant on the Palestinian-Israeli scene, which is Mohammed Dahlan. Mohammed Dahlan is supported by both Egypt and the UAE. He is, in fact, an advisor to the ruler. So this is another game with the ailing situation of uh, President Abbas, so we must look at Dahlan in a different prism. Egypt is also playing a role now, a very active role in Libya. Um, General Haftar came different times, several times in fact, and uh, Hassan Salama, an old friend of mine, is most of the time in Egypt. So uh, I believe that uh, uh, Egypt's view for Libya is much more optimistic than for Syria. Egypt's view is Libya should not be divided, and he, they will do everything to keep it united, whether it is the two, Farag and uh, Haftar, whether it is through the population. We have a big number of labor over there in Libya, so we will be part also of the reconstruction sometime. And uh, 
As for Syria, it's a different story. It's a different game completely <coughs> because the, the partners are changing. Uh, we support very much from the beginning Russia's uh, position, which was not to let Bashar fall. We were never against, we were not pro-Bashar, but we know that but the alternative was, no, was not going to be in the advantage of anyone there. Um, we have other problems, which is Ethiopia now, with the Renaissance Dam, Sudan, all these have a, an Egyptian dimension to that. That's why I say that it is very important that the US and Egypt define an agenda which is important to both of them and which would include regional stability. <coughs> Libya, Syria, Sudan, Iraq, counter-terror, and the divide between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Do you mean if that you want to know what Mr. Trump thinks, just open the tweets. Hmm. Uh, what, so you think that is, are you saying Egypt will, is playing or will be playing a role between Saudi Arabia and Iran? That's the last thing you said. I think so. You the are saying the, it, the divide between Iran and Saudi Arabia cannot continue, it's not good for the region. And Egypt is playing a role? Not yet. All right. On that uh, note, uh, that we should be expecting a role by Egypt, I want to thank the panelists. They have been marvelous and fantastic. And thank you. Thank you. And I, uh, I, I thank you very much. And I will turn the floor uh, over right now to uh, the, the John Duke Armstrong. And thank you very much for allowing me to host uh, this panel. Thank you.